Let's see what the stew has for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the esteemed Eric Bontz, the courageous Carla Everson, and the spectacular Suzanne Cabral. Today we have myself, Ange, along with Dee and JT, and we're going to talk about how we learn new settings for games. Hi. Hi. Hello. Before we dive into that main topic, though, let's ask our get to know a gnome question. Uh, since we're talking about settings, what setting does one of your all-time favorite characters live in, and how did that setting help inform who that character is? Dee, I'm going to start with you. Oh, God. So, it was less of a setting. Okay, so my favorite character, Deantha, I get, I, you can see where I get my <laughs> name a little from, um... It was less of a setting. It, it, it was kind of a setting. A long time ago, it was something called the Copper Rooster. It was a, it was one of those sand, no, I can't really say sandbox, but kind of like those um, West Marchy pick up and play. You have like a whole cast of characters and like you can choose whether or not you want to join into an adventure like any given like week. And so I was able to be a lot more, I didn't have to have a very tightly knit party. And that changed a lot of how my character was because she was a character that wasn't ever really going to really be too attached. And if I was in the kind of setting where I had to interact with my party a lot, it would eventually become more more emotional and tight. And I think that would have done something to a character that I don't necessarily know I would have wanted. By being able to be a pickup and play adventurer, I was able to like build up relationships with everyone but without too much commitment, which completely fit her. So when she eventually did start caring, after months of playthrough, there was a lot more weight to it compared to doing that in like five weeks. That's interesting. That's mm-hmm. interesting. That's pretty cool. I, I like, you know, the, the idea that, you know, it's a character who doesn't have as, you know, her ties aren't as strong to the world, but over time, you know, that still becomes meaningful. Mm-hmm. Takes time. Took time. How about you, JT? So I'm going to pick a character from a uh, novel. Uh, the novel is The Long Run by Daniel Keyes Moran. Uh, it's been out of print for decades, so good luck finding a copy, uh, especially since I probably own half the world's supply of that book. <laughs> uh, I, I have uh, one, two, three, four, five copies of it, including a signed limited edition numbered blah, blah, blah version. So anyway... The Long Run's main character is Trent the Thief, and it's a cyberpunk novel. Post-world collapse, as you would expect for any you know cyberpunk. And in uh, th- this particular world, the peacekeeping force is the global police force and slash military. And uh, uh, Daniel, the, the author, made the interesting choice of France came out on top after global collapse and in the re-rise of civilization. So all the peacekeeping force folks are from France because they don't trust foreigners. Uh, They don't trust anybody outside France. Anyway, Trent grew up in poor neighborhood and always dreamed of basically living large, uh, being rich, and and really didn't have any specific goals on how to pull that off until he found a heist that went horribly wrong, and that's the opening of the book. And one thing leads to another, and uh, uh, you know, hijinks ensue. But uh, Trent grew up in a violent environment, and that framed his character. He never carried a gun, very much MacGyver-like in in that fashion, right? And his main goal, while 
pursuing or his main moral compass while pursuing his goals was to never kill anybody. He would use knockout drugs, but he would not use like lethal force. And um, throughout his adventures, one peacekeeping force guy ends up dying more or less because of his own fault, because he's trying to catch Trent and Trent mm-hmm. gets pegged for the murder or gets framed for the murder. And uh, the whole book, he's like, I never killed the guy. You know, I, I don't kill people. That's not in my that's not me. But it, it, it's a such a fantastic story. Rich characters that all stay true to themselves. So that that's that's why I'm picking Trent from uh, uh, The Long Run by Daniel Keyes Moran. That's cool. So, Ange, how about you? What, what character are you going to talk about in your setting? So my, uh, my friend Tristan, who is one of my local GMs that I play with pretty frequently, has a homebrew campaign that he's been running off and on since the early 90s. Oh. And it's, it's, not a, it's not an ongoing campaign or anything. Normally what he'll does is he will run a, a campaign through it and then when that campaign is done, he'll advance the timeline a generation or so and then pick up with new characters where the world has been affected by those previous PCs. And initially, he wanted to do kind of a small occasional campaign with his younger cousin, myself, and his wife. And I was like, it was, we were playing fourth edition. And I was like, I want to play a changeling. And he's like, huh, I've never thought about how to fit changelings in my world. Let me think about this for a minute. And he came back to me with the idea, because I just wanted to play a changeling rogue that could stab things a lot. And he came back to me with like, okay, changelings in this world are more what changeling means in terms of actual fae. They are these children that suddenly appear in the bassinet and you, you know, like the family doesn't know, is this a blessing or a curse? Because if your child is born as a changeling, i.e. can change into anything they want to look like, it's, it's a gift from the Fae. But the gift from the Fae are often a two-edged sword. So if you, are, if you are good, worthy people, that child will be a gift. But if there are things in your past that may be less savory, then that child will be a curse. And, you know, as a result, most families are a little too afraid when a child appears and it is a changeling, so they're given away. And my character was one of those, you know, born to some wealthy royal family and then given away immediately because, you know, take this child away. And she was raised in the slums and the streets of the city, but always knowing this mythology of, you know, like she never know where she actually came from. But she knew that this was the history. And like just that taking this character background from the standard books and basically let's let's how let's see how this fits in this setting. And that character, because that was the previous campaign, that character has become this legendary figure in the campaign world known as the Faceless Lady. You know, mm-hmm. she is you know, she has her fingers in all these mysterious things as she is the master of spies for the king and queen of the kingdom. And the fact that just that little bit of change in where changelings came from informed who Z became and, you know, what, you know, what ended up happening to the world afterwards because of her. Nice. I like that. Cool. I also like the, yeah. uh, the moniker of uh, the faceless lady that that's uh, evocative. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's. 
it was kind of I, I had a few fangirl moments in the current campaign because she actually showed up and like I'm like, I know who that is. Mm-hmm. Like actually all three PCs from the previous campaign have showed up in various uh various scenes and storylines in the game and I'm just like, I know this character. I know this one. Nice. You know, these little these little like Easter egg moments that aren't really Easter eggs, but they make me so happy. So getting into our main topic. Uh, setting is one of the major aspects of any RPG. You've got the system, you've got the characters, but without the setting, the game is going to flounder. Now, setting can be super generic and based on a few tropes here or there, but sometimes it can be pretty dense and complex, making it a bit more intimidating to dive in and try and run games in that world. So, we thought it would be cool if we discussed how each of us learn new settings. Now, you've got game settings like Eberron and Faerun or the Sixth World of Shadowrun, and then there's, you know, games that are set in worlds that are based on other entertainment media like Star Wars or Firefly or Alien or that type of thing. Or how 3.5 has, uh, not 3.5, uh, or how 5E has like a bunch of Magic the Gathering settings uh, they brought in. Yep. Yeah, it's it's another setting. Like uh, there's there's rumors that they're going to be, re- re- you know, basically bringing back the Dark Sun setting and that type of thing. You know, so how do you guys approach learning a new setting that you've never run before. Uh, JT, I'll throw this one to you. All right. So I, I kind of start with a, I don't know if you guys have heard this phrase before, probably uh, it's a uh, point crawl. So think of a, you know, there, there's hex crawls and there's dungeon crawls. And then there's point crawls where there's points of interest. And uh, the party travels from point of interest to point of interest to point of interest. And I start with a seed area, usually a small village, or if it's going to be like a Waterdeep or Lankmar or any other large city type setting, I'll start with a neighborhood or a sector or whatever you want to call it. A ward would be the, mm-hmm. the fantasy version, right? And uh, so I start, I start small and I grow out from there and organically grow the player's knowledge of the world. And if it's brand new setting to me, Like if I were to all of a sudden my group convinced me to run a Dark Sun game, I know nothing about Dark Sun because it it came out kind of in the flood of new worlds that were coming out back in Mm -hmm. the the second edition days. And when Dark Sun hit the the shelves, I was I was so burned out on learning new worlds. And I was like, eh, not for me. No particular reason. Just uh, it, it was I was overloaded. So Dark Sun would be a brand new environment for me. And I would start my learning pretty much the same way. I, I'd whip out the map and go, hey, that sounds like a cool named location. And I would dig up details about it and organically grow my knowledge a step or two ahead of the group so that I could accurately uh, present it to them. But yeah, that's kind of my approach. I think that's a major key is is start small. Don't feel like you have to know everything all at once. Uh, how about you, D? I'm in a weird place, mostly because um, I'm someone that I... Okay, so... I grab campaign books, sure, but I remix them as much as possible, mostly because, (laughs) one, I'm very lazy and I have very little time. Uh, And so when I go through a book, I try getting the gist. And from there, I will shred it into pieces and like kind of run with however I think I should make it go. In that I am not like I'm not devoted to the campaign book at all. And I've had I've had multiple types of games. I've had games where people are like okay with that but i've also had the kind of party where 
someone will correct me at every given step. And yeah, that that's the question I would ask you is because that's that's one of the other topics I wanted to get into. This is one of the pitfalls of running a setting is that somebody else may know that setting better and. You know, while you as the GM have every right to run whatever portion of that you want, there's a certain point where you can't call it X anymore. Exactly. Like, I'll I'll put forward, I am still, about five or six years after the fact, still angry at the guy who brought a Dragon Age game to Gen Con and had no understanding or knowledge of the Dragon Age setting at all. Mm-hmm. Oh no! He advertised it as Dragon Age, and then he had a goddamn dwarf cleric in the party. <laughs> now, if you are used to normal fantasy, that sounds like a perfectly reasonable thing. Sure. But one of the integral concepts to the Dragon Age setting is that dwarves can't cast magic. There is also no divine magic. There's mm. just magic. Sure. So the fact that he had a divine caster in... A group of people that are immune to magic in that regard was like, okay, you don't give a crap about this setting, do you? And to me, that's a, you know, that that's a little bit of an extreme example of the pitfalls of not knowing the setting you're running. But I mm-hmm. do think mm-hmm. it is important to be aware of where those lines are, because you, you will sometimes have players at your table who know the setting better than you do. Oh, absolutely. I, I fully expect someone's going to know the saying more, more than I do. And so, like, in those cases, I definitely, I've always given, a, like, a disclaimer at the very beginning, like, hey, by the way, um, this is going to be a lot different from what you would expect, and things may or may be different from the source material. Which helps, but not always. Mm-hmm. And it's always really tricky, because I am, I do not believe uh, someone needs to read, a, I do not believe someone needs to read the full book in order to, like, fully capture a thing. As long as you can, like, get the base beats of it, like, you're right with the whole, like, dwarf cleric thing, because that's just fantasy at the point. That's not Dragon Age. Like, yeah. I think if you need to hit the core notes of it, but all the intrinsic, like, tiny details in between, I am more than up to just, like, throw it away as needed. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, but, um, not, not, not earlier here, but in a previous podcast, that long time ago, I used to, like, uh, there were, when I first got into 5e, I ran 5e for four months without them knowing whatsoever that I did not know how to play 5e. <laughs> nice. I, I was able to trick the players because I had I did have a setting book. I I was with somebody at the time. They lent it to me and we broke up and uh, they never saw it again. Um, I still have it. So I ran that because I could I got the idea of all I need were the towns understand how some of the monsters worked. And have a loose idea that it's a D20 system. And that's all I really, really needed. Mm-hmm. The details in between of it, like, do I know the Sword Coast? Not very much. Was able to glean some details from the book. A little bit, but I didn't care too much about it. So it turned my version of the Sword Coast, which some people are like, you know, really, like, really into, like, fear of, like, was it Forgotten Realms and all that, into something a lot more dragony and a lot more Haiti on the Harpers. By the way, I hate the Harpers. <laughs> I will I will I will talk to no extent of how much I dislike the Harpers. <laughs> Meddling jerks. Not, not pretty okay, much. So, pretty much, yeah. They they're 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 the they're the reason why uh like Forgotten Realms is still in the dark age. We could have gone they could have gone like higher level magics, but what was it? Every time someone develops any degree of power or development, the Harpers calls them and like cuts it down. They 
they literally reverse any degree of technological or magical development. It's actually really messed up. <laughs> I kind of do a um a little bit of a mix of the two. I will like with what JT was saying, I tend to take it fairly fairly slow. And I, I will fully admit, I don't think I have ever actually run a game where I was completely ignorant of the setting before running the game. Now, something like Tales from the Loop, the setting is basically, you know, like, I don't know a lot of the specifics of the setting, but I know it is kids on bikes in the 80s solving mysteries and weird science. And, you know, if I know those tropes, I can play a bit with the setting and then fill in the, you know, the grout of the details, you know, as we go. Uh, when I ran my Eberron campaign years ago, I, uh, you know, I knew the general gist of Eberron, but I would basically do research on the places they were going as they were getting ready to go to those places. Mm. So I'd fill in the details closer to when I actually needed those details rather than trying to overwhelm myself and become a walking encyclopedia <laughs> of the setting. Right. Yeah. That, that being the walking encyclopedia, don't don't even try. No, unless yeah. it's unless it's your homebrew, right? Unless unless you are the encyclopedia, right? Uh, it just uh, madness lies in that direction. To be honest with yeah. you, you know, and and I think we've talked about this before, at least on the stew, maybe on a podcast before, but making use of that player at your table who mm-hmm. knows the rules really well, like if you can work with them and just rely on them to give you the rules as you go. That's a great symbiotic relationship. And you can do the same thing with a setting. Right. Like, if you have Jared in a Forgotten Realms game, he knows his Forgotten Realms lore. So you can just go, hey, Jared, what's a blah, blah, blah. Yep. And he'll, like, have the information for you right there. You know, and you can, you know, yes, sometimes having a player who knows more about the setting than you can be a little intimidating and a little overwhelming. I will probably never actually run a Lord of the Rings game because <laughs> those fans scare me. That's but... why I don't run Star Wars. I love the movies. Mm. I have not read one word of any of the books, the comics, the blah, 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 all that. I, I have seen, I don't even have many Star Wars movies there are now. That's how little I know about Star Wars. I, I've seen seven of the movies and only liked three of them. So I quit. I played in yeah. the Star Wars yeah. uh, adventure and I was a stormtrooper dedicated on getting like a uh, lightsaber powers and everyone's just like you can't do that you're not a jedi and i'm like watch me spend 35 exp to get lightsaber <laughs> to watch me <laughs> yep yep i mean i'll play in a game but there's no way i'll run it for star yeah, wars and it, you know it's a it's a balance of where you as a gm can find that comfort level sure like i do not know star trek i do not know star wars i don't know either star trek or star wars <laughs> Well Star, enough. Trek, Star Wars Trek. Yeah. I don't know either of them well enough to say I am an expert in either setting. But I'll run a game in both because I know the I know the tone and the gist of the two of them. And as long as I don't get somebody at the table who's gonna be it angry at me for not knowing all of the specifics, you know, I'm cool with running that. But at the same time, I will completely shy away from from running the One Ring or any of the Lord of the Rings based games because of that same reason. I know the gist of it. I don't know the specifics well enough to make a huge fan happy. So I'm going to use a music analogy here. You you mentioned tone and theme. Mm-hmm. So you, if you go to a local bar back when that was a thing, and you know there's a cover band 
up on the, the tiny little stage that's big enough for like three people, but all five of them are up there anyway. Uh, right? You know the place I'm with talking about. Set. Yeah, with the drum set. Yeah, you know the you know the place I'm talking about. And they got the little eight by eight, you know, dance floor directly in front of the band. Anyway, um the uh if the singer is horrible, but all the rest of the musicians hit their notes on the cover songs, it's actually not that bad of an experience because they've got the mood, tone, theme of all the songs down and the lyrics, you know, maybe the lead singer gets drunk and forgets the lyrics. Who knows? I've seen that happen more than twice. The lyrics aren't all that important. So the point I'm trying to make is the specific details of the world you're adopting are not that critical. If you mm-hmm. can if you can nail the tropes, the style, the theme, the the, mm-hmm. the 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 tone of the game that that comes out of whatever the material is, you're set. You've mm-hmm. you've got it. Unless of course you have that overbearing know-it-all player. And actually, mm-hmm. I, I addressed that in a, uh, a notes to article about using someone else's setting. And I had that know-it-all player. I was running the Expanse game that had just come out. Well, at the time of the article, it had just come out. And a very good friend of mine had read all the books, seen all the TV shows, listened to all the audio books, uh, read the wiki pages, all that. He, he just loves the Expanse. He's actually the key reason I wanted to run this, to give him a, the experience of being a player, a, a primary character in the, 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 the setting. And he was a fantastic asset for me. He, he was not a, oh, you're doing that wrong, because I made it well known up front that uh, while we're starting with this seed of a setting, we're going to make it our own. This is going to be our expanse. Right. Right. And right. and he leaned hard into that. And and we had a blast for about four sessions. And then scheduling went all haywire and the, the, the group fell apart. But I, I think, you know, like it's it, that's the difference between you basically taking a look at this setting and going, let's play this, but we're going to modify it to be our own. And that guy who ran Dragon Age at Gen Con, who just wanted to run a fantasy game and didn't give a crap about the setting. Right. You know, he wanted the mechanics, a... but not the setting or something right. like that. He wanted to run a fantasy game that wasn't D&D and never bothered to actually look sure. at the actual setting of the game. And therefore had about half of his table sitting there. We kept side-eyeing each other <laughs> as we're like, really this is what he was doing and then we we basically just started talking in dragon age slang to each other in character and pissed him off because he didn't know what we were saying nice <laughs> so yeah. you know it's like i don't expect anyone to like know it that deep but like at least get some of the core concepts right right you know right. which is it sounds like that's what you did with the expanse oh you very just, much so yeah you know yeah, I had a uh, game master once. We were playing in Forgotten Realms, and it was a sizable group, uh, six, seven players. And we were getting ready to travel from point A to point B. I, I forget the specific cities involved. But uh, I had, I didn't have uh, rations for the trip. So, And he had the, the big wall maps that, that they printed back in the uh, late 80s, maybe early 90s. Mm-hmm. He had those pinned to uh, cardboard and like leaned up against his walls. So all the maps were very visible, and I, w- I found the right map in the right city and went, oh, we're traveling this road. Here's the scale, measure. We travel so many miles a day. It's about a 10-day trip. And um, I looked at him and said, finally caught his attention because he was dealing with other players while I'm doing all this. Caught his attention and said, hey, it, according to what I see on the map, it's this far of a travel. 10 days travel, is that correct? Can I get 
like 12 days of rations. And he looks at me and goes, oh, there aren't any accurate maps of the Forgotten Realms printed. Uh, you need to, uh, he's like, no, it's actually going to be a 25 day trip. And I was like, uh, but it's a made up world. So any map printed is therefore accurate. You know, it's, well, it, 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 and basically what he had done, he had set in his mind that it's going to take us 25 days to make the, the 10 day trip. Cause that's what he put in his notes. He, he didn't do the math that I had just done. <laughs> and he was upset that I used the reference material to, I don't know, warp his plans. I was like, okay, cool. I'll buy 25 days worth of rations. And he came back with, oh, there's only 12 days worth of rations available in town. Oh, Jesus. I was like, but there's seven of us. How are he basically wanted us to struggle and starve along the trip, but he didn't set it up correctly. <laughs> I, I, I didn't play with them very long for, for yeah. obvious reasons. Yeah. 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 My breaking point was I was a, this was second edition D&D. I was playing a fighter. My strength was 1899. So I'm one percentage point for max strength for human. And uh, he said that I was too weak to carry two halflings at the same time. What? Yeah. What? I'm, I'm like I, I mean, I'm I don't, Arnold Schwarzenegger I don't... And, and, and taller, but Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and I can't carry two small children. I mean, I don't even remotely have close to an 18 <laughs> strength, and I can carry two toddlers. Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. He, he had certain ideas on how the game was supposed to go, and uh, when things were put in his face that, that counteracted those or countermanded his concepts, he would just put his foot down and say no. So, oh, GMs. Yeah. I, I ended up stealing a few of his players. I, I do suppose <laughs> that if GMs like those didn't exist, we wouldn't have a blog. True. True. Right? Those are lessons learned on, <laughs> on how not to do things. You know, fortunately, I think we have more great examples on how to do things. Yes. Which is fantastic. Yes. So anyway, I, I, I'm done grousing down memory lane. <laughs> <laughs> so one other question. Um, so we, we've kind of talked about how we learn new settings. How do you introduce players who are unfamiliar with that setting to the game? That. JT, you kind of touched on this a little bit when you first said, yeah. so I'm going to throw this to D. Oh, so um, I prefer people that don't know the setting very well. It is... Because <laughs> you can do what you want. Because I do what I want. I still want to hit the same notes. I tend to have like a, a quick primer. The number one thing I like to do is uh, the rest of a campaign of mine will be fairly, uh, I think the word is scuffed. It will mm -hmm. be a heavy improv, uh, things will change, things will do. But I always try to make the first impression of an area count. The first impression of a campaign, I set aside things like the world is scarred and the elves cannot use magic. Things like that. I do the same thing when it comes to a new country, a new city. I will always have, at the very least, an intro. I will, I cut down my prep time for every four hours. I only work for half an hour to one hour tops. But I will spend a good deal of time to making sure my intros always hit because the intros that hit give the players an idea of what to expect, what to feel, and the kind of things that you're going to be dealing with. Like um, a town of mine, the city, uh, I, what is it? I call it Radita or the City of Guilds. The City of Guilds is tall, aspire-like, and it, it starts off short at the very end, at the very edges with the wall. But slowly, all the buildings spiral up towards a, almost a tip at the very center of the town. 
So you can get a mental image that kind of looks like like a reverse conish, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and littering across the sky, harpies fly about delivering packages. Like with that. Nice. Yeah. So like I've as a player, I've found that if I don't know how to have my character live in the world, I start to struggle. Mm. Like and like Numenera is a game where I struggle with this a little bit. Because I don't fully understand the setting or the world, and so I don't know how to have my character live in that space. So I've been thinking about this a bit as a GM, and how do I how do I make sure that my players know how to have their characters live in that world? That's a great point. Because we focus a lot on NPC connections and intra-party PC connections, that, like during session mm-hmm. zero. I, I think there's a lot of, uh, maybe this is a Gnome Stew article, somebody, maybe me should write, I don't know. Um, you know, how, how to connect your players to, or the the PCs in general to the world, because I I don't know about you, but I really haven't put a whole lot of thought into that. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a, that's a great point. Do you have any last, uh, last thoughts on that particular subject, JT? No, I've already kind of touched on that. You know, I, I start small and lead up from there. There is, uh, I want to piggyback off what Dee had said about, uh, you know, the first impression of a new location or environment or setting is one thing you really want to evoke in your players is a sense of wonder, regardless of setting, genre, any of that. You know, again, it could be kids on bikes, genre. You want to evoke that sense of wonder. Maybe the 1980s. Riding a bicycle through your neighborhood is kind of blah and boring, at least for somebody in my generation, because been there, done that. But uh, within the first couple of minutes of gameplay, if you introduce that blue portal that opened up on the playground, boom, sense of wonder, mm. you know, or, or, or whatever. The fine folks over at the Writing Excuses podcast did an episode on how to up the sense of wonder in fiction. I think their advice can be applied to role-playing games as well. So I'm going to dig up that link, get it over to Rob, and see if we can jam it into the show notes. Yeah, that would be cool. So I will find that and get it to Rob, because they, they speak to how to evoke the sense of wonder much better than I do. Dee, do you have any last, wor- any last words, any last bits of advice? Last bits of advice? I feel games only really matter as much as your players can enjoy them. And it can be really tough when introducing settings, because when you personally are trying to run a setting that you really care about, you're always going to be concerned, am I doing it justice? And the Mm -hmm. answer is, I don't think that matters. I think what matters is that are your players enjoying the setting that you're giving them, regardless of its accuracy? Mm -hmm. And I mean, it feels cheap to say it it all depends on the players, but it honestly does. And let's let's look at let's look at this this way. Your game is not actually going to become an episode on TV that exactly. is going to be dissected by millions of fans. It right. is for the four to six players at your table and yourself. You know, so if you got a few things from the story Bible wrong, who cares? Right. You know, who cares? As mm-hmm. long as your players got the, the right feel and enjoyment from the game, that's that's what matters. Yeah. Yeah. If you're having fun, yeah. you're doing it right. Yep. Yeah. I think we can start heading on out of here. It was, I was clean. This is a very clean episode. Yeah, yeah. I think this was clean. So, 
This show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You too can become a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website to the Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad is brought to you by the GPS of imagination. Getting lost in all the fictional worlds that inhabit some kind of space in your brain? Are you tired of trying to head to Tatooine and instead finding yourself ending up in Ba Sing Se? Well, there's a whole lot of dirt in both, but they're not even remotely close to one another. Use the GPS of imagination and get to your chosen destination without any fan ficky distractions. I don't know how you do that without like taking a breath. That was impressive. That was impressive <laughs> to me. That was impressive. <laughs> if you're enjoying the Gnomecast, you'll probably like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows. Here's one to check out. Down with DND, the Mad Wizard Sean Merwin and Teos Abadia dish about everything DD with a focus on the brand and newest edition of the world's most popular TTRPG, tabletop RPG. Oops. <laughs> you can find all of us at gnomestew.com, at gnomestew on Twitter, and gnomestew on Facebook. JT, where else can we find you on the internet? Uh, One-stop shop for all things me is going to be jtevans.net. Look at the top edge of every page and you will find links to all my social media, my books, my Royal Road free fiction, everything up there at the top of every page. Excellent. D, where else can we find you on the internet? You can find me on my, you can find me on Twitter and now Twitch because I'm now a streamer at DiceQueenD. As well as YouTube, but there's nothing on it, so you know. Uh, I have a blog, and I also have uh, a, an itch, but you you can find this somehow. Good luck. <laughs> hey, Ange, what about you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at orikes13, O-R-I-K-E-S-13, although I will warn, Twitter is kind of dead since I haven't been attending cons, and no. Instagram is mostly pictures of my cats. So, do you think we avoided the stew this week? I think so. We did fantastically. Yeah. A nice, I don't know stew names, borscht. <laughs> <laughs> Gnomecast is hosted by Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. I don't even think there's going to be any bloopers for Rob. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs>